Hey everyone, and welcome to The Seed. We are changing over to a new podcast show that is more reflective of where I am in life. Ironically, The Seed was planted by every guest that I had on my Homes and Hops podcast. So listen in, subscribe, and comment on my new monthly podcast, The Seed, which stems from Dandelion Discussions, all about women empowerment, entrepreneurship, and objectives that are often planted in us. Our guest stories are here to inspire, educate, and most importantly, to let you know you are not alone. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining in, listening in. I am here with Julia Atkin. Hey, Julia. Hello. So I am going to do a quick little bio because it is pretty amazing. And this will actually go into what we're going to discuss So you have your bachelor's, your undergrad from John Hopkins, which that alone is amazing. (laughs) And then you went abroad, right? Mm -hmm. For your master's. I did. So you went to the London School of Economics and Political Science. um, And throughout all this, you did have a psych component, always English psych for your undergrad, and then organizational psychology with your master's program, which is awesome. But then that, to me, that makes then a lot of sense of where you went afterwards. Now, I might pronounce this wrong, your company that you were with for a very long time. You were with them for a while. 17 years, yeah. That's crazy. People don't do that anymore. I know. I'm old school. It was a company that got acquired. So I joined. It was called Mori when I joined. It got acquired by Ipsos. Ipsos. So not Ipsos. Which is a global research company. It's publicly traded on the Paris Stock Exchange. So it's public headquartered in Paris. So you were very much in the social sciences. Yes, very much so. Election, social sciences, government work. Yeah. And appeared on TV, radio, press, rudders, CNBC, like all, all the things. All the things. Lots of public speaking. And how old were you at that time? I was in my like 20s. It was late 20s, maybe 26, 7, 8, 9, probably when I was, I was peak, uh, (laughs) peak media appearances very early on in, in, um, in the career to be set on CNBC, but it was good fun. So I I have to ask as somebody who gets very nervous in public speaking, Mm. listen, I was a domestic extemporaneous speaker. Nobody came (laughs) and saw me. It was me and a judge. It was easy peasy, but (laughs) (laughs) quoting, quoting time magazine and newsweek, Mm. (laughs) but, um, but what was that like? Like, give us the picture of you sitting down at a desk. Were you at your desk? Were you at home when you got the phone call to be the spokesperson for the elections and to talk about it? So it was it was far uh far less formal than that, the process, although it ended up becoming more formalized. So I was doing election and political polling in the UK um, for mostly media companies. So not not as a partisan party pollster, but uh, to predict the election outcomes. 
um, as part of a, a large team that that did this. Um, and the founder of that firm, a man I still consider a mentor, he's absolutely wonderful, Bob Worcester, now Sir Robert Worcester, uh, oh. who founded Mori, which was eventually acquired by Ipsos. Um, a, a, a couple of years into my career, working with him, doing data tables, analysis, checking stuff, and and another colleague, Mark Gill, uh, who taught me basically everything I know, um, he called me up and he said, Julia, Sky News needs somebody to go on and talk about Sandra Howard, Michael Howard's wife. He was the leader of the opposition of the conservative party at the time. And Sandra Howard, I can't honestly even remember now, but had some sort of like expenses scandal and or something was going on. And he was like, they want a woman. Off you go. And so I was a deer in headlights. I'd never done anything like this before. I kind of had a sense of how to speak publicly. And he was like, don't wear big earrings. Speak in small sentences. Here's the cab. So I <laughs> go down, run down the stairs, jump in a black cab, head over to Sky Studios. Sky is, you know, one of the major networks in the UK. And they kind of like walk me to the back, hook me up to a mic. And they're like, remember, don't look at the camera. I was like, where, what, when, who do I look at? And I did an interview and talked about Jackie Kennedy. I don't even remember. I kind of probably blacked out during it um, with my memory um, and came back to the office immediately afterwards. He recorded it. He made us all watch it together and gave me real time critiques. Um, and that was the beginning. He was like, great, you did fine. You'll do it again now. Um, so part of it, to be real, was I think that they wanted more female spokespeople in the political election world on TV. I worked for the company that was sort of the, the biggest brand name in elections and politics in the UK at the time, kind of like Gallup combined with the network polling equivalent, right? There's yeah. not an equivalent in the US, but that that idea. And, um, and I, I kind of, I didn't, you know, make a fool of myself <laughs> at the first time, at least. So they're like, oh, she can do this. She'll be fine. Um, and so he kept sending me back. They would call uh, up Maury. They would call us up and say, we would like somebody to come on tonight's news about X or Y or Z as, as it related to politics and the poll analytics and the, the numbers sometimes or the impact of an event on the polling data and um, there was a few of us who did it, my boss and, and um, another boss and myself. And we kind of traded off based on what we each could speak best to. And eventually over time, I, you know, I formed my own relationships and began getting the calls direct. And it was like, can you send Julia over? Can Julia come do this? Can Julia come do that? Which was wonderful. And so it, it kind of spawned into this micro side gig. <laughs> of course, yeah. I don't any of this. It was you know part of my job. Um, so I don't mean that it was a gig in that sense, but where I would jump in a cab and go down to Whitehall and join BBC BBC News for 20 minutes, either down the line, which is where you look right at the camera and you're being interviewed remotely, right? And they just put something behind you on the green screen or in studio with an interviewer. Um, I, I was I was briefly a co-host of a CNBC Squawk Box over in the UK because they, during one of the election cycles in America... <laughs> They liked me enough that they just wanted me to come every morning. So I'd wake up at five in the morning and get in the, they always send you a cab. That's like the, the nice thing they do. They don't give you makeup. They don't do you up. They just send you a cab. So I would get in the cab and go over to the studios. And so it's not quite Hollywood. It was not as glamorous as I kind of wished or hoped. I will say when you did the breakfast programs over there, 
that is when they did put you in full on makeup. Oh, wow. Um, you were kind of around the breakfast table or on the couch with, with, it was always ladies with some of the breakfast ladies. Then, then they did your makeup. Um, but that was really the only time I just carried a powder and a bronzer and I would come. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> That's awesome. So it was I, great fun. And it taught me everything to your point about speaking publicly that as something, um, I know it sounds weird. I was a shy kid. And then I did, I did karate forever um, as my sport growing up. And it just gave me a confidence that I didn't know I had in me. And um, so the public speaking thing, um, I actually really enjoy now. Um, and I learned it. Like I was consciously taught it by my colleagues and the folks who were getting me out in the public speaking sphere more because there was speaking events too, in addition to the yep. media work. But um that I enjoyed. I get a little, I get a little buzz from it sometimes. There's nerves always. I don't mean that I'm just sort of completely a cool cucumber, but if I feel confident on the subject matter. You know, uh, a lot of people don't it. realize that there could, that there are, there, there is an occupation out there that, that is completely specific to helping people public speak. Oh yeah. It's a whole specialism. Yeah. I mean, the main media training I got was don't wear big earrings, but eventually after two or three years of doing this, I got involved in the media training we began to give to others. And I, and I participated in some of it too. And you do start to learn more techniques. And I think you learn to speak in, at least for TV, you need to speak in, if not sound bites, then sort of like complete statements, right? Yeah. You can't run on and on and on and on and on. You have to give a pause in case the interviewer wants to come in or they want to cut the piece later on, et cetera. Um, so you learn some of those techniques um, and just how to express yourself clearly and succinctly, I think is a part of it as well. Is that um, how the cadence starts? You ever notice with the commentators, there is that the cadence that they have? It's because they need to be pausing constantly because you have someone in your ear who's telling you what's coming next and in the events of breaking news or new data coming in, or they want to cut to another interviewee who's not in studio, right? You need to be able to give them space to come in and do that from a, from an editing perspective as well. So um, a lot of the researchers that I worked with or, and still have worked with um, are supremely intelligent, sort of, uh, you know, they're academic in focus and in nature and, and if they're not careful, they will kind of go on more than is strictly needed. And so one of the techniques when you're training researchers to speak publicly is to rein it in a little bit, right? This isn't a lecture. Yes. You have to speak and then pause and so, wait for their question. It's a it's it's just practice, right? So you went to school for organizational psychology. Mm -hmm. And which in my mind, I'm thinking that you're you're that you're that guy that goes into office space, like an office space. It's, it's, it, I think it's, so it was a new program when I did it, but I think it was for consultants. Yes. I think that's what they were envisioning. And loads yeah. of the folks that I graduated with are consultants or in that space, um, which just never was really my jam. But um, the idea of decision-making that affects or is affected by large groups of people, like the way not just an individual thinks and takes decisions. Economic psychology was always my, my favorite sort of what are the, 
the risks and rewards of certain types of interpersonal decision-making. But then when you scale that to an organization, uh, what does that mean? It turns out it was super useful because my company was acquired and we had to integrate into a much larger global company. Then at, when I was at Ipsos, we acquired two or three other large companies. And at one point I was put over a very large new team that had just been integrated with a wildly different culture to the Ipsos culture. And, and some of the principles I think that I'd studied um, you know, a decade or so before became very relevant suddenly. Okay. Uh, but honestly, I wanted to go back to London and, and I found a degree that fit the bill. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. I wanted to be in London. Um, I'd studied abroad there and I wanted to go back for a year and I wanted to go to the LSE. And so I found a degree that sounded awesome. And this one did. But so how'd you find end up at Maury? They were running a short-term scheme of hiring non-EU and UK individuals. And myself and a girl from India got in and then they decided it was too expensive and they stopped the scheme. But they gave <laughs> us both a visa. Like they they sponsored our 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 visas. So I worked five years on a work visa and then I was able to get the equivalent of, of residency. It's called indefinitely to remain. Um, and so then I was basically a... I passed like the tests and I kind of got that whole, but the green, green card equivalent here. There so then I was, then I was cool to stay. Um, by that point, I'd also met the person who's now my husband. So I was more incentivized to stay a bit longer. So I can't believe I've never asked you this question until now because I have not met your husband, mm -hmm. but is he British? Yes. We met on an Excel training course in the basement of Maury. How did you the same company forever? Did you, did you, were you like, I would be like Madonna. You throw me over there for an extended period of time or surround me with somebody with that accent. All of a sudden I would start to have that accent. Because you're an empath and you absorb from around you, right? You can absorb all of that. Um, I came back sounding distinctly mid-Atlantic. When I moved back <laughs> with the company, the head of our North American business, Daryl Bricker, who also has been a, a great sort of a great mentor to me, he goes, Julia, we're really glad you're moving back to the U.S., but you need to drop the accent. And we're like, what accent are you talking about? <laughs> but it was de it was definitely some sort of hybridized something or other. But yes, my husband is British. We met over there. I kind of imported him along with me when we moved to the U.S. with the company. They they moved moved us over for my job. So for everyone out there listening, explain a little bit more. Like I know from having a background in politics and working on campaigns and working in direct marketing, I know what we do with with the messaging, with the polls that we receive. Um, now I was working for a party. So of course, everything. I'm just letting everybody know we base like in politics, every politician bases their message on what we tell them we want to hear. Now, how did you utilize that, though, when it came to trying to determine the results of the election? So to me, election prediction work, polling work, electoral work is a different beast to what I call campaign work, which is like the messaging and, and a lot of what you were in, which is like, I think like very much in the trend, like that's like the, that's like the meat of, of like an election and a campaign. Um, 
our the the work that I did both in the UK for for British politics and then in the US with many you know other folks for um, American politics was working on behalf of a large um, media company in either case, either you know the BBC or Sky News over there or ITV or here in the US, we worked for the AP, the Associated Press, we worked for Reuters um, and a couple other media companies. And, and the objective really was to pulse the population in ways that allowed us to accurately predict the outcome of the elections, of the midterms, of the gubernatorial races, of the of the Senate, um, of the presidentials. Um, and it's a whole science that is imperfect, as all social sciences are. Um, but it's pretty good. Um, but that's what makes social sciences is fun. So we'll that's the it. reason why I like social sciences. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, the trick of election polling is is much less to do with um what people are going to, how people are going to vote, because most people you can profile to, I know how they're going to vote. Like I know based on where you like the geography of a place and it's socioeconomic and sociodemographic characteristics, like how it will fall from a Democrat Republican perspective, what you don't know, and is much harder to predict is turnout, whether yeah. or not people will vote. Like I know that somebody's a Democrat, but I don't know if they're going to show up at the midterms or on election day. Right. And I know the profile of people who mostly do show up and I know the profile of people who mostly don't show up, but a lot of elections hinge on differential turnout rates compared to the previous election. Cause we have to model turnout based on previous information that we have, you know, 60% of people vote. Who are the 40% who are not going to vote? Mm -hmm. What do they look like election to election? So, so like, what are some of the fundamentals and then what's going to change? And that's where I think the the art and the science come together quite a lot. Um, yeah, the record of, I mean, all my kids are like born between elections, born in 2012, yeah. 2014, like they're, they're timed. Um, but I tried uh, to time mine too. That didn't work. <laughs> I was, I was they're 15 months it's apart. Like, but, um, but it, it is, it is, we had a, we have a pretty good record. Like the elections I've worked on, like there were two big fails that I remember desperately clearly a London mayoral and a certain election in this country that everybody got wrong. Um, although we got <laughs> the least wrong, if I'm honest, doesn't count for anything, but. I am telling you, I called, <laughs> I called that from the beginning. And I remember, I remember during the, the primaries yeah. and, and, and saying everybody thinks that this is a joke and that they are just like, and they keep giving attention and attention and attention. It's like, what was that, that young, not so talented um, boy, an American idol, Sinjai? Oh yeah. Who, um, yeah. That made it as that American idol productions actually got concerned because they were like, crap, like he's going to be signed up with someone and he's not talented. <laughs> this is not what we <laughs> Because America keeps voting for him because they think it's funny. Right. <laughs> so, right? And but, yeah, it, yeah, it was our, so our polling data are actually our fundamentals modeling at the time. And there's like papers and stuff about this, but uh, fundamentals modeling, meaning if we modeled the outcome of the election based just on things like the approval rating of the incumbent mm -hmm. party, the incumbent president and the da 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 da, it was like a shoe in Republican win year. Yep. So then the the sort of the Trump factor was taken into play, and everybody sort of changed their 
models and, and ips i was actually on tons of you know deep south and midwestern radio programs i didn't do a lot of high profile media once i moved to the us because that's a whole different ball game but um but i did I ended up doing a lot of radio and um i was invited onto a lot of what i would call pretty sort of more conservative leaning um channels because our ours our, the ipsos data at the time was among the only ones that were openly predicting a trump win yep our 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 numbers shifted in the summer up running up to the election and when we we also got it wrong but um it not not by as much of a margin and of course everyone got the popular vote right but that doesn't yep. count when you're that doesn't count when you're predicting elections no so um, issue. <laughs> it, was, it was great fun but the you know but we we in general it, you know we've had a really good record and it's, it's as much about sort of the way you're baking the social science in together as well as the quality of the measurement you're undertaking um but it's we, such a different it's such a different process to what i would consider most of the other research work i did which was around you know like public opinion research sort of mm -hmm. think of like pew published surveys you know um i did some awesome work with the arts associations you know what what value does the american public place on public art and the funding of public arts and all these types of things um and then a ton of work in the in the in the government space related to sort of patients and patient experience and all that so they're just they're very different spaces but the fundamentals of good data are obviously the, the thing that underpins it all so I'm just saying everything that we're talking about right now is so easily translated to every single service that is provided, every single product that's provided, especially with social media and the marketing that is out there now. Like being able to do those analytics and and be able to create your customer persona. Uh, it's It's just amazing how easily it overlaps with one another. I mean, I always, well, we were talking about ego before this started, but I always joke, but I always do say, because I, I can, I can acknowledge where, where I'm good at things because we're, we all do have uh, yes. pride and egos, but um, I always say communication is sort of my superpower, actually. Like I understand data and analytics, but there's always, you know, I learned from people um, who taught me these things, you know, either academically or in practice in real time during these cycles. Um, and I and I learned the, the the numeracy and the stats and the explainers and Bayesian statistics, which I still couldn't do myself if you paid me, but I understand enough to know what they do. Um, but the superpower I think that I bring to the table, in addition to being able to understand those things, is to be able to talk about them mm -hmm. in ways that, and, and I think that's where the media and the and the comms training like dovetails really nicely with what I generally call a more technical career in terms of like what what I actually do. It's it's pretty computational and quantitative I in a lot of ways, but to to be able to talk about it in words that make sense to people, I think is is really where where there's a little bit of uniqueness and that's kind of the thread that stitches through a lot of a lot of my my yeah because julia you went from social science and working in that world to working in the hard sciences you're in you're in tech i'm in tech man yeah I am. Um, I moved um, at, after 17 wonderful years at Ipsos to a, and I and I moved into a marketing and comms role in the last couple of years that I was there actually, which 
took me well outside just the social sciences into all of the marketing and comms mm -hmm. that was absolutely fascinating to me and and also kind of I think helped me see the landscape of the industry in a way that I um, developed this real sort of appetite almost for for some of the tech and software that was not completely in a different field, uh, maybe sort of um, cousins with some of the research world. And so I ended up at Medallia where I am now doing, um, yeah, a, a much more technical role. I'm a solution strategist, which... Um, I didn't totally understand what that meant when I applied for the role. Yeah. But uh, I figured it out quick uh, with the help of some folks. And it it is a person essentially who communicates effectively about the technology, the technology's usages, and the ways that those solutions can fix our, and I work in the government space now, um, government, customer, problems so it it's again it's sort of it's this um it's this strategic role which i love it's a role that allows me to provide that translation between our engineers in this very technical community and our customers who many of them are social science researchers or they are policymakers or they are um, experience, you know, they're advocating for veterans on the Hill, they're, you know, they're in political spaces, et cetera. Um, to help, to help that, that translation, I think is because this is where, I mean, tech modernization and the digital, you know, all of that is, is very relevant to where government is trying to go now. And it's, it's a little bit behind the private sector, meaning your experience on irs.gov is not the same as on amazon.com, no. but, there is an awareness in government that that's a that's a direction they're trying to move. And so more and more understanding the foundationals and fundamentals of some of the tech is critical. So there's there's some of us working on, on trying to translate that. So how is it that you transition? What did you focus on? And we've discussed this before about so many times we don't go for something because we read the description and we don't check enough boxes on that description that we just already tell ourselves we didn't get the job or mm -hmm. or we're not qualified to help that person whatever whatever it may be we stop ourselves before we even try yeah. so so what was it and how was it that you then honed in on your your superpower and understanding your superpower and how that can translate and be juxtaposed into the tech world just as much as it was in the media communications world i think it i think it comes down to two fundamentals and the first is um that i stopped being afraid of asking questions a long time ago even questions that might make it seem like I don't know what I'm doing or I'm completely out of my depth because I think over time developing a confidence in the thing, the things that I do know about yes. um, allows me the kind of freedom to not know about other things and to be fine with having to ask something that is like a bait. Like I, I, I moved to Medallia and I had to sit down with an engineer and be like, explain to me exactly how the internet works. Like what are the tubes that yeah. connect together that mean that our technology can live in this cloud space and service this agency? Like, can you just 
stitch that together. Like, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing to ask when you work in a technology company, but I had to understand it enough to be able to then explain it to my customer, which I did by an analogy involving a, a, a hotel that worked very well. So <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, how do I ask enough questions and ask them in a way that's both respectful, but also gets to the thing I need to understand so that I can begin to kind of de- de- deploy my superpower. Uh, but also, and this is another thing you and I talked about, which is is mentors and mentorship. Yes. Um, I tried very hard to um, to to mentor where appropriate or support, you know, folks um, whom I work with in every chance I get because I myself have benefited so profoundly from mentorship, um, formally and informally. For whatever reason, most of them are dudes. I don't know why. It just as I think the industry in which I work. Um, I, some I of the think it's the industry. Yeah, I mean government, politics, and so yes. some of the folks in the UK who were absolutely transformational. I mean, Bob Worcester literally plucked me and stuck me on TV, and my whole career changed. Um, and so, and then over here, you know, the guy I worked for mostly in the US, Cliff Young, taught me basically everything about. Uh, American election polling that I know, but um, I had uh, I had known that I wanted to get more into the the tech space, research adjacent, but technology. It just felt more exciting. It felt like where I wanted to be. I was going to change careers in my early forties. It my kids were kind of like, you know, getting into school. It, it felt like a time where I could try something new, and um, and I reached out to a friend of mine who left left Ipsos and he, and we worked together in the UK and we worked together in the U S and he, and I said, you know, I saw this role. Um, my husband suggested, like my, my husband knew the company, you know, what do you think? And he was like, Oh, great. You can do this role. This is perfect. Cause I'm, I do this role now, but I'm going to move up into this other role and you can backfill me. Yep. Like, but I don't even know what those words mean in the role. <laughs> and so, <laughs> And so we had a conversation and he explained it to me and it was a translation issue, not a, not a skills issue, right? The, the way in which certain skill sets and, and functions are described in this space in which I work now, the customer experience and technology and software space are just a bit different, but it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's not a series of, you know, to, tech, I'm not, I'm not an engineer, right? Nobody's pretending that, but it's, it's a uh, it's an ability to translate and and Joe kind of took me under his wing and and explained to me the actual the actual elements of the role. He helped me prepare for the interviews for the role, and and I got it of course um, because it's where I am now and it's gone <laughs> gone better than I anticipated in the sense that I am so much more qualified for the role now that I'm actually doing it than I had even realized. And it means I love it more because it's a joy to do the things that I'm good at in a, in a culture and a company that I really enjoy, but also working with a client base. I work now mostly with, with the VA and veterans and with um, folks in the military space um, and active duty and their beneficiaries and, and patient in the, in the military health system. And it's so, I, I feel so proud to be able to work with these folks and to be able to um, help kind of modernize some of these systems that are are really looking for it. So now we're also going to transition to the fact that um you had to a decision to make at that time of which job you were going to choose. I um and one had the title 
Mm-hmm. That would definitely feed the ego, right? Right. Or the other one that seemed to fill, check the boxes internally for you more. For sure. But but it didn't have the title associated with it. So this is, I mean, this is exactly it. And sort of why we started almost talking in the first place is sort of choosing the adventure that's right for yes. an adventure, right? The one that's life. <laughs> the one that's right for you. And um I I at Ipsos, I um I was in this very sort of senior trajectory in a very high leadership role. And I and I, it's it's a wonderful company. I I enjoyed um it immensely, but I think I was looking for this very different set of challenges. And yet another mentor, Jeff Kale, had said to me, if I was in your shoes and I was your age and I knew what, you know, I would, I would get into tech. And that just stuck in my head in a way that I think spurred an interest that hadn't really existed before. Again, power of somebody you trust and respect. Planting saying the seed. Something, something that clicks, right? That little seed gets planted right there. Yeah. And, um, and I found this role and it sort of found me and, um, and it was completely different. No commute, work from home, full-time remote, remote to DC, but very little travel, especially pandemic. Right. Um, and a whole, like a completely different set of, of, of fundamentals. Um, and it felt like jumping off a cliff. It was terrifying because I'd always worked within a global a global structure with a huge amount of hierarchy and very clear or clearish, right? Roles and structures and all of this. And I moved to a much smaller technology company that was technically public at the time, but has since been taken private, was acquired um, with a couple thousand employees and a very different uh, culture, um, a much more flat structure in a role where I mostly was just responsible for myself. I mean, there is, there is some additional elements of, of leadership, but it's, it's really a, a an ind- more individualized role. And it turns out I love it. And it turns out it's perfect for me um, because I'm able to flex all those, those muscles that I have in the communications and in a mission driven space. I've always aligned myself to work that felt good like morally, ethically in my sort of soul and in my bones to be involved in um, the election work speaks to me like profoundly around democracy and the notion of like bringing the the truth of people's voices to the public spaces. Um, And, and so to be able to be involved in supporting the experiences that folks who served in the military and those who are their beneficiaries are experiencing uh, from the services and the places that are are delivering services to them, delivering healthcare to veterans, delivering benefits to veterans, et cetera. Yeah. It's a space that, 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 you know, that feeds my soul in a way that feels good and, um, and gives me some of that opportunity to kind of communicate and shine and participate in large events and still be adjacent to some of those worlds that I used to inhabit, but in a very different way. Um, but it, it was a huge change. It was a sea change for me and it was absolutely the right one, but it wasn't a classic move, right? No. Because some of the other roles I was looking at were very, very corporate, um, very like, you know, large teams, um, et cetera. And, um, I'm lucky I have a spouse who supports me doing, you know, whatever I want to do. Right. And that we're yep. in, a, in a position to be able to take some risks at times 
calculated risks. But, risks. <laughs> um, but I, I, it, it's, it's uh, a joy to have made a decision that scary and for it to be working out. <laughs> so throughout this entire process and the journey that you've been on, and what would you say would be like the top three things that you would, as somebody who can mentor a bunch of people right now, what would you say to them? Top three things of advice to them when they're when they're looking forward, when at things that they want to accomplish, achieve, fulfill within themselves of their passions and their trajectory trajectories forward. I think that the first relates to a word we were talking about right at the beginning journey and that you just used, which is an important word and a powerful word because it, it, it isn't about a destination. So, so cheesy, but it's not about a destination, right? It's about literally the process. And I think that we, and this is encouraged by the way we have to apply for jobs and the way we have to represent ourselves online with our LinkedIn's and our social profiles, et cetera. We're intended to have stitched together this path that makes sense. I did this because then this would happen and this would happen and this would happen and look at where I am now, right? Yep. Um, and, and the reality, of course, is that there were infinite pathways that could have been taken uh, in infinite directions. And some of it was intention and some of it was luck and some of it was coincidence and some of it was a global pandemic and whatever factors, mm-hmm. right, are influencing the series of decisions. Um, I think the thing I learned most and that I try to communicate to others is when we try to set a, a goal and a path towards that goal, we are setting ourselves up Um, often for a disappointment or a perception even of failure, because I don't mean we should all just sort of do whatever the wind takes us, but it's, it's never going to go the same way for someone else as it goes for you. So um, I often look at other folks' careers and say, oh, if I do those things, I'll be there too. And a, that was never the case. And B, in retrospect, I would have never wanted that to be the case because the things I've done have given me, you know, learnings and education and joys in ways um, that I certainly could not have anticipated. But because at the key inflection points, I either had flexibility forced on me or forced myself to be flexible or to take a risk. Um, I think it allowed me to make decisions that um, were the right ones for me rather than the right ones that I thought would like look good on my LinkedIn, mm-hmm. if you will. And I, I don't mean to be trite because it's not so simple as that, but I think we often think, well, if we were a VP before, next we have to be an SVP. Or if we were a manager before, next we have to be a senior manager and the title and the this and then that must go up, Right. And I'm not saying anybody should take a pay cut unless it works for them and it's the right thing. But I'm saying um, to to put too much weight or onus or emphasis on the role name and the positioning and the seniority at the expense of the other parts of a role. Like, is it flexible? Is it a good place to be? Is it with people you respect? These things are so much more profoundly important at the end of the day in terms of your ability to succeed, much less your ability to be happy, right? Yeah. In, in terms of a role. The 
The other is very simple. And um, a female mentor said it to me, Lisa Lanier. And she said, and I, it's obvious, but at the time I needed to be told I was in the midst of an election cycle. And I think pregnant with my third kid. And I went to her and I said, how is this going to work? I don't think I can do any of this anymore. Like you're going to promote me now. And I just can't, like, I can't look after more humans. I have two humans to look after. Now you're going to have me look after other people in the, in my business. And she said, you just have to always health, family, work, health, family, work. I've been ignoring my health, not the pregnancy, of course, but like I've been ignoring, yep. you know, I'm working too late. Wait. I haven't been sleeping properly. Um, family next and then job. And she said, no matter, no matter, no matter, no matter what you do, you have to make your decisions in that order. And that for whatever reason, I needed to be given the freedom by a female, like a female leader at the time to decide to put other things in front of work. I don't know why that's my psychology. <laughs> I, I definitely don't think you're the only female out there that would get to hear that from a, another female leader, because we do, we, I feel, I feel like we pin ourselves often in comparison to men mm -hmm. and we see their focus continuously in work and it be work and probably work, health, family. That's probably how we perceive, whether it be true or not, that's how we perceive them to be. So then when we're entering that world too, we do the same thing. We do the work, family, health. Right. And most of the most of the wonderful, supportive men that I've worked alongside um, who have mentored me have had spouses who were not in full-time work outside the home or not in paid work outside the home. They were um, able to do more in the home, which enabled their husband to spend a lot of time in the workspace, which was great for them, but it was different for me and it was complicated and confusing. And, um, I, again, they were all immensely supportive. I've been very fortunate in that my, my boss Cliff, when I was, this is a TMI, when I was returning to work after having my first and I was pumping cause I was still nursing as well. Um, and there wasn't like an appropriate facility. This was a while ago too. And so the rules have changed a bit, but at the at this tiny office space we worked in and there wasn't like a room that locked and it just it was a chaotic and I didn't know what to do in HR we're in Toronto and whatever so he just got super frustrated with the process and gave me his office for six months he was like I moved everything out we've had it clean just go and it's yours now <laughs> I mean that's wonderful it changed really my confidence about coming back to work I could lock the door I could do my thing I could get my work done and it meant it meant that I felt supported and respected in a mm -hmm. way that kind of broke through the system. Like that's not what was supposed to happen. The company should have provided this, da, 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 da. but Cliff just wanted to make it work. And so he did. Right. And so I, I was, I was fortunate and supported those things. Well, the other like one, the other third of my, you know, sage wisdom <laughs> that I can bring to the table is, um, is the the point we were discussing before about ego and and kind of acknowledging that it's real and that it exists and that it's okay and kind of welcoming the ego into the room with you um and sort of saying this is this is part of me this is who I am like I I 
I have an ego. We all do, whether we acknowledge it or not. And what that manifests as is different for all of us. But I have taken um, to in the past couple decades to to talking more about it with leaders and 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 folks I've worked with and saying, listen, I you know I've had a lot of external benchmarks of this success mm-hmm. in my career, and I don't do the media stuff anymore, for example. But I I need feedback. Like I'm a person who needs to know how they're doing and when they're doing well that they are doing well because I often think. I know I'm doing well, but sometimes I'm not. And sometimes, right. And, you know, is this going well? Is, are the, are the relationships we're building what we intended it to So I say, I need the feedback. Of course, the constructive feedback, but I need you to tell me when I'm doing good too. And I just say it, I put it on the table. <clears throat> and I love that you advocate for yourself. I well, love it, it. It's been a productive way to help people understand who I am and what I need, but also to um, make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilled and fulfilling the the roles, especially in a new space. I mean, I didn't walk into the tech space and know everything. I had to ask a million questions for a year before I could do this job well. And um, it it has it has served me well to be able to sort of say this is part of who I am and and some of the things that I need in in the work I do. And I think when we try to suppress it too much, we end up kind of squashing ourselves a little bit. I, I completely agree. And I said this to you before, our egos are there to help protect us Mm. as well. Um, and I also do want to say this about the pathways versus the journeys. I feel like when we just streamline on a path, we miss opportunities because it didn't fit on that road. But if you look at it as a journey, then there is that ability to have those additional opportunities and experiences that will help elevate us and, and open up our worlds to maybe something new and, that we never imagined that could ever be that's even better for us and more suited. Yeah. But, I think, I think when somebody's a clearly like yourself, like a, a high achiever, a high performer, scholastically always kind of been driven um intended like my mom worked full time i intended to work also yep. full time and like these things it it can be it can be narrowing like it it can put some light sort of blinders on the sides of you in a way that that we maybe don't even notice um until much later because certain things are 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 not aligned with that idea. Um, changing industries entirely and, and the type of role that I do, that doesn't mean that the title that I had before aligns with the title that I have now was not a thing that I thought a career woman does. Um, but it was completely the right decision. And I'm a career woman, therefore a career woman does it, right? That's right. So these these kind of these constraints we put on ourselves are part of um, the, the challenge of figuring out how to navigate these things that that come up. And I think a lot of us, have, I mean, COVID changed everything, right? It changed the way we all have to kind of think about and deal with. 100%. And, and so- Tell me in doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So there was good that came out of it. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of travesty and a lot of things that, that it's going to take a while for us to, to overcome, whether we recognize it at this moment or not. Um, but economically, mentally, <laughs> socially, all those things. 
Um, but there, there was some good that came out of it. I especially love seeing how certain businesses were innovative. Yes. And so quickly shifted. It's amazing when we're put in a position, how fast we can move when we know it's either you, you move left or you're about to be hit like yeah. one of the two. It's, it's, and to me, it's also spoken a lot and told us a lot about um, companies and their leaderships and their cultures in terms of their, their willingness to, to look out for an employee base, to um, work with um, the needs of organizations, et cetera. Thank you. But to 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 be flexible or not flexible, um, and and some jobs are not remotable, of course, at all. Anybody working in healthcare has has mm-hmm. has only you know it's it's harder than it's ever been, I think. And so, I think the the ways in which organizations have 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 shown us who they are, um, and and shown us where there's there's some great light to be shined on on amazing leadership and and work and and some spaces that haven't thrived as much because they weren't willing you know to adjust to the to the new world i think it's been it's been a bit of a, a truth teller i agree so thank you so much julia i really truly appreciate you being with us today it's absolutely amazing i hope you come back again it's such a pleasure. I've loved all of our conversations and this forum and, and the, the series of, of conversations you have is, is really inspirational. So I appreciate you having me. Now, with that being said, I do want to see if anybody has any questions. You can just unmute or you can ask them in the chat, either or, and I'll read it off. If you put it in the chat, just let me know. We've been comprehensive. I know. Well, if nobody's going to ask a question, I am going to ask Julia a couple silly questions. Yay. All right. So so I um, I have this certification from the House of Shine in Grapevine, Texas, and it's all about like finding out, honing in on your strengths, your hobbies, interests, irritants, needs, and your experiences. Cool. And along with that, they have, of course, product, because that's important, diversify. And it is called the chat pack. And I'm telling you, I love it. So are you ready? Yes. Okay, this, this is a good one. Are you ready? Okay. If you, if you had to describe yourself, your personality in terms of a farm animal, which animal would you choose? That's a good one. I know, right? A farm animal. I can tell you what every other person would probably choose for me versus what the one I would choose myself. <laughs> Interesting. I, um, hi, Kristen. Oh, Kristen um, has a good one. I, um, I think I'm going to go with, all right, this is a weird one, but I'm going to explain it. Okay. I'm going to go with a pig. And okay. that is because they are intelligent, which yeah. I am. They are loyal, which is, I am almost to a fault, I would say at times, but they also kind of present a vibe that's a little bit different to who they actually are because they are like wallowing in the mud, doing their pigs, garbage eating things, but they're actually basically dogs. Like they're super intelligent and trainable and all these fun things. 
And so I feel like that represents me because um, I am this extroverted introvert who actually needs a lot of like alone time and quiet time in my life to recharge, but loves conversation and humans and interacting yeah. outside the world. And so that's how I relate to that question, which again, a therapist would have a field day with, but <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, I'm not a therapist. <laughs> So Kristen actually had a really good question too. She said, what skill are you most excited to develop in yourself in 2024? Um, well, loving back at Kristen herself because she's yeah. amazing and awesome. And um, I feel like the thing that I would like to most develop in myself in 2024, oof, Um. I will say that um, part of what I like about my current role is how it's sort of very flexible in terms of where ownership and leadership lies in terms of the strategy. Our little, we have like a little federal team that um, does great work and pushes hard, um, but it's still growing, right? It's still a little bit of its infancy. Medallia's big company does a ton of corporate work. We have this like government practice over here. And I, I would like to bring some of my, to, to refine some of my leadership and, and mentoring skills, mentoring, um, and kind of level that up maybe more in the tech space in a way that can support some of the growth I see coming around the corner. I've kind of given myself a break from, from some of that aspect of my work. And I'm, I'm excited to, um, push on that a little bit. Uh, but I don't know, that seems like a kind of sideways answer to your question. Also figuring out how the internet works, to be fair. <laughs> do you know how the cloud works? I do now. Because <laughs> Tom taught me. He sat with me for two hours and showed me schematics and explained it all to me. I mean, I do understand the fundamentals. I just mean yeah. like we deploy into GovCloud, which is a secure Amazon AWS cloud, which has to connect to the VA through these other things. Like I think of it as plumbing and that helps me. <laughs> a little a little side note. I um I also have with my real estate experience, I also property manage. And one of the places that I, I was a property manager at was a data center. So I got to see so the, the servers uh, and the little, I, little yes, connectors. yes. I um, helped keep the cloud alive and well. Oh, and to that, you know, we are <laughs> grateful for that, keeping the cloud alive and well. I mean, talk about one of those jobs that was a lot of pressure. I, I mean... Seriously, intense. And especially like I have no clue about technology myself. So well, I'm learning about air gap security. Have you heard about yep. this? There's a like, oh, it's a whole thing. I, I heavily relied on and appreciated our engineers. Yeah. Highly. They are they are the 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 lifeblood of of a place like uh Medallion. We've got, you know, some very good ones, thankfully, who are very patient with me. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, it's nice because everybody and like, especially with the government work, I mean, there's an objective at the end where, um, it feels good to be working in service of the VA and to be working in service of these folks. And so there is a, there is a kind of a common cause that folks rally around in a way that is wonderful. I love it. 
Does anybody else have any other questions? All right, I'm gonna ask you one more and then I'll let you right. go. I'm ready. Oh, this is a tough one for me to choose between the two. I'm gonna go with this one. What is the longest line you ever stood in? And then of course I'm adding why. The longest, this is easy. The longest line I ever stood in was to vote in wow. person in 2014. The, no, 2012, excuse me, 2012. The first and only time I've ever voted in person in a voting booth um, in Washington, D.C. in the 2012 election. Um, and I had my baby with me because she was going to vote, too. Um, <laughs> and my my first and I lived abroad. I turned 20. I hadn't voted yet. 21. I hadn't voted yet. That's right. Okay. I lived abroad until I came back at age 30. So I voted remotely by mail. Oh, yeah. I were the absentee ballots that everybody had to wait on to find out. It's me. <laughs> me you were waiting on. Me and those military ballots. <laughs> so I voted absentee and then I moved back and I lived in DC and I voted in person. It was so exciting. And I asked for extra stickers and I like put them all over. <laughs> And then I moved to Illinois and it's super easy to vote by mail here. So now I never go to voting booths either. Uh, but the line to vote that day in DC was like around the block twice. It was insane. I stood in line for like three hours and I didn't That's even- That's probably why you don't, you don't go in person anymore. Right. absolutely why I don't go in person. <laughs> I vote but it was by miles the longest line I've ever willing to see. I do. I, I am so old school. It's like, I still have books. I don't utilize an e-reader and I just started using a Kindle because my husband has all these books that he owns. So now I can just download those. But we like part of the reason we bought the house that we live in now is there's this like tiny little, we call it the library. It's like yeah. some bookshelves, whatever. And it is, has all my real hard books, like all. And it just makes me so happy to see them and look at them and touch. Them. I know. I love a good book and I do. I still love going to the voting booths on the day of the election. And there is early voting now, like I can go vote right so now, early. but it's just not the same. It's just, I, I make my kids sit down with me and we like do the ballots together. Cause I'm like, you're going to learn how to vote, but <laughs> it's a pretty like, yeah. it's like a paperwork exercise, less of like a democracy sort of, <laughs> um, but it's too much work to go in person. And so I know. Yeah. <laughs> do vote always. Everybody should vote always. But um, the only time I've don't ever add, don't add to the sixty percent, right? <laughs> well, thank you very much. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and week. You too. This was super fun. I loved it. So thank you again for having me. Thank you, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening in to the seed. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, go to dandelion-inc.com and click Let's Connect. And please be sure to subscribe to The Seed's monthly podcast to hear more inspiring stories from other badass women that are all around us. Remember, behind every woman is a tribe of other successful women who have their back. To you all, thank you.